0: Well, good, morning. good morning. Are we alive? Well, let's try again. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I do want to make you aware next Sunday uh, I will not be here. I'll actually be uh, preaching to our brothers and sisters in Christ at Grace Christian Fellowship down in Largo. Uh, and I want to make you aware of that to invite you to actually pray in two ways. First, Uh, Please be praying this week that uh, being down there would be a blessing to them, that they would be encouraged and built up by the preaching of the Word. Uh, But maybe more importantly, uh, pray that me being there would be a way uh, that the Lord would deepen our partnership and relationship with other like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ in our community. Uh, We are desperate to see churches here partnered together for the sake of the kingdom advancing, not being territorial about our own church or our own reputation, but instead uh, jealous for the reputation of Jesus. So please pray that uh, my time down there uh, would be a part of advancing that kind of relationship. Uh, well, now, over the last several weeks, we have been considering how the book of Daniel teaches us to live with faithfulness and hopefulness, as increasingly the church is pressed to the margins of society and culture. And we've been saying that the book of Daniel was written to a people who are even more disoriented than we are. Overnight, they were forced to figure out what it looked like to be faithful in a new land, with new customs, new morals, new gods, and new religious convictions. And so in the first half of the book, we were looking at several moments in the life of Daniel and his friends in order to learn from their example what faithfulness is to God in a uh, nation that is not our home looks like. And we saw first that we should prioritize faithfulness over influence. Then we saw that we ought to depend upon God's wisdom rather than human wisdom, that we ought to fear God rather than fear man, that we ought to pursue humble confidence in view of God's glory, that we should hope in the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of men. And then finally, last week, we saw that we should obey our trustworthy God, even when that obedience becomes costly. And this is usually where preachers stop preaching and move on to a different series. Uh, But now, in the second half of our book, we turn our attention away from the example of Daniel and his friends and turn our attention now towards the visions that God entrusted and revealed to Daniel. And as we consider uh, these sometimes obscure and difficult-to-understand visions, we may well wonder why. God, why didn't you give us just six more stories? Wouldn't that have been more profitable for us as your people? And I think the Old Testament scholar Wendy Witter is helpful here. She explains this. Sometimes we need more than just seeing God act on someone else's behalf. When a friend finally lands just the right job, we may well rejoice with him, But we may also think, I'm glad God worked that out for you, but I don't see a promise that he'll do the same for me. When we see a friend's cancer go into remission, we're thankful for her sake, but we might also say to ourselves, sure, God can do what I need him to do, but will he? When a missionary recounts stories of God's miraculous activity against demonic forces, we're glad to be in God's camp, but we might also wonder, when is God going to do something miraculous for me? And the truth is, he may not. He may never give us the perfect job, a clean bill of health, or miraculous deliverance from whatever darkness you're facing. And so sometimes seeing that God is able to triumph over whatever ails or oppress us is not enough. Sometimes we need to see more than the particulars. Sometimes we need to see the transcendent cosmic nature of God's rule over all creation. We need to be reminded that even when life falls entirely apart, never to be put back together again, that God is still on his throne. He is always and ever ruling. And this is the territory of the visions and the apocalyptic literature of Daniel 7 through 12. Now, if you've never heard that term, apocalyptic literature, it's simply a reference to a genre in scripture that describes two types of scripture, or two sections of scripture, I should say Daniel 7 through 12, and the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And it's a genre that celebrates God's victory over his enemies using metaphors and symbolism. And because apocalyptic literature employs so many metaphors, images, and symbols, the goal is simply to create an overall impression not to provide extensive details about the course of future events. Now you may be wondering, if the goal is simply to create an impression, an overall impression, why do these visions in Daniel and Revelation cause so much debate and division about how they line up with future events? Well, there's probably many reasons for this, but I think the most basic one is, most of us don't understand how we should read and interpret apocalyptic literature. And as a result, we press the images and the symbols uh, too far. We try to take too many details out of them. And so with that in mind, I want to begin our time together by highlighting five principles for faithfully interpreting apocalyptic literature. So first, we must exercise caution in interpreting highly metaphorical visions. Again, the goal of apocalyptic literature is to create an overall impression, not provide extensive details about the course of future events. That means, then, we should be cautious and reserved in trying to squeeze too many details out of these images. Further, even though there's going to be clear parallels and connections between some of the metaphors and symbols we'd see in one chapter of Daniel and another chapter of Daniel or in Revelation, we would also do well to be careful that we don't insist on a more specific interpretation of those images if it's not explicitly in the text. So, for example, we might think an image refers to a particular world event or a particular global leader or a particular nation. But if the Bible doesn't tell us that it refers to that specific person, we should be very hesitant to say it does. So, second, we must remember images communicate truth imprecisely. So certainly images, metaphors, uh, symbols are intended to communicate truth, but they do so by way of comparison or analogy. They're not clear propositions. They're not saying, hey, this president is going to be some horrible person, or this specific kingdom is going to be the one that takes over the whole world. They're not doing that. They're not speaking by clear proposition. They're speaking by analogy. And so as one Old Testament scholar points out, the key to the interpretation of images is to find the point of connection and to not push the peripheral elements of that comparison. So we need to remember images communicate truth imprecisely. Third, we must interpret figurative language figuratively, not literally. One of the hallmarks of faithful biblical interpretation is to seek to understand what the original author was seeking to communicate to the original audience. Now, many people call that way of reading the Bible, reading the Bible literally. However, if the original author intended to communicate something figuratively, it would be wrong to take that image literally. Instead, we need to seek to understand what they intended to communicate and interpret it accordingly. And so if they intended to communicate by metaphor, symbol, or figuratively, then we ought to interpret it figuratively. Now, this is really important and the kind of genre we're about to embark on because it's highly metaphorical. It uses a lot of images, which means that we need to understand even things like numbers that might seem to be literal as probably symbolic because that's what the genre is about. Fourth, we need to imagine how these visions would have been received by the first audience. So while all scripture is beneficial for us, it was not written first to us which means some of our fascination with how these visions relate to specific events in our contemporary day are probably misguided. Lots of details about specific events in our day will not have been particularly useful for the first hearers, which means it's highly unlikely that's the point of these visions. As one Old Old Testament scholar points out, to prevent the outlandish and speculative interpretation of this material that is only too common we must remember that the image and language come from antiquity and often from Scripture itself, not from the future or our contemporary time. And so we need to do the hard work of understanding where these images have their roots in Scripture and the ancient world itself. Fifth, we need to recognize that some visions can have multiple fulfillments. One scholar writes, from Denver, The Rocky Mountains appear as a series of distant peaks close together, though in reality those peaks are many miles apart. Similarly, the prophets saw the future as a succession of events and sometimes as one single event. But then the New Testament goes on to show that in between them, there are large gaps of time, which means that some of the visions we encounter may appear to refer to a single event, but in reality, they describe multiple events and therefore have multiple fulfillments. And so all in all, we would do well to remember, as Daniel Block, the Old Testament scholar, points out, the intention of apocalyptic literature is not to chart out God's plan for the future so that future generations may draw up calendars, but rather to assure the present generation that perhaps contrary to appearance, God is still on his throne, and that the future... Is firmly in his hands. So, with all that groundwork laid, I think we're finally ready to consider our passage for today. And as we look at Daniel chapter 7, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us that we can live with hope through our suffering by remembering that the kingdom of God will overcome the beastly kingdoms of this world. We can live with hope through our suffering by remembering that the kingdom of God will overcome the beastly kingdoms of this world. And we'll see this by considering three realities about the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. First, the kingdoms of this world are beastly and yet are under God's control. Second, the kingdom of God will be established over all other kingdoms among all people forever. And finally, the kingdom of God will be received by his saints after they suffer for a time. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have given us uh, such a wonderful and rich book in the Bible. That communicates to us by so many different genres and styles and communicates so many great and precious truths to us. So Lord, as we come to this vision today, We beg that your spirit would help us to understand it. You would use it to apply your truth to our hearts so that we would live in light of it and that we would come to hope in you no matter what ails us, no matter what faces us, trusting that Jesus is good, that Jesus is glorious, and that Jesus is on his throne. Lord, help me today to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that the sermon that is applied and received by the power of your Holy Spirit, would be better than the one that was prepared this week. And Lord, we ask that you would use this to take us from this place, loving Jesus more, trusting him more, because we know he is trustworthy. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the community Bibles under your seat or the seat next to you. And if you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures, you can find Daniel chapter 7 on page 744 of our community Bibles. You'll be looking for a big, bold 7. That's a chapter. And if you don't have a Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We would be delighted for you to continue to engage God's Word, not just today, but throughout the week. Now, just so you know, for the sake of time today... I will not be reading the scriptures as I go along as I normally do, but summarizing them. So please, plan to read Daniel 7 on your own time this afternoon, this evening, throughout the week. Uh, But once you find Daniel 7, uh, take a moment uh, to prepare your heart quietly to receive God's word. You know uh, where you're facing suffering. You know where you need hope. Ask that God would give you the hope you need this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. In verses 1 through 8, we see our first reality. The kingdoms of this world are beastly and yet are under God's control. The kingdoms of this world are beastly and yet are under God's control. Beginning in verse 1, our passage for the very first time in the book of Daniel steps out of the chronology we've been going through. And it moves back in time. Uh, no longer are where we left off in Daniel chapter 6 in the reign of King Darius. We've moved back to the reign of Belshazzar, in fact, his first year of reign. And this is the first sign that the book of Daniel is about to take a shift. The second sign that this book is about to take a shift is for the first time, Daniel is the one who receives visions while he's sleeping, not one of the kings of Babylon. And so then, beginning in verse 2, Daniel begins to describe his vision to us. At first, he sees the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. And then in verse 3, out of the great sea emerge four great beasts who are terrifying. In verse 4, we see that one of these beasts is like a lion with eagle's wings that get its wings plucked up. And then something sets it on its two feet and gives it the mind of a man. In verse 5, we see that there's a second beast, like a bear, that's already devouring ribs, and it's told to arise and devour much flesh. And then we see in verse 6 that there's a leopard with four wings of a bird and four heads, and to it was given dominion. And then finally, in verses 7 and 8, we meet the fourth beast, one that is more terrifying, dreadful, and strong than the others. It was different than the other beasts, and it had ten horns. And as Daniel was looking at these ten horns, an eleventh one came up, plucked the other three horns out, and had the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now we learn the interpretation of this vision in verse 17. We're told, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And in verse 23, we're also told, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And so here we see that these beasts represent four kings and four kingdoms. Or as some would say, it represents four kings epitomized by four kings, a particular king in each kingdom. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what four kings and what four kingdoms these beasts represent. I think there's a great deal of evidence to support the historic view that they represent the kingdoms of Babylon, medo Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. And I think, again, there's many strengths to that view. And if you'd like to know why many people conclude that, I'd be glad to share some of those details with you after the service. But as one Old Testament scholar points out, the greatest problem with that view is that chapter 7 goes on to describe the climax of the vision as the complete destruction of the fourth beast, and with it, all human evil power at the hands of one like a son of man and the saints of the Most High. But even today, more than 1,500 years after the fall of Rome, and probably closer to 2,000 or 25 years after this vision and Daniel, we're still looking to the future for that to happen. And of even more importance, the scriptures themselves, again, do not tell us which kingdoms these beasts correspond to. So then, we ought to allow the focus of our passage be our focus. And again, remember two of our interpretive principles from earlier. We must remember images communicate truth and precisely. So as fascinating as the connections are between the images and beasts that we see here and their historical possible counterparts, the reality is those connections are being imposed upon the text. They're not given to us by the text. And so they are likely asking them these images to speak more precisely than they're intended to. Second... We again need to imagine how these visions would have been received by the first audience. And again, that means we need to focus on what would have been clear to the first audience. So again, let's look back then at these images and consider what would they have provoked within the first listeners. So first we're told, the four winds are stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts come up out of the sea. Now, this image is of great significance because it calls to mind the chaotic sea of ancient Near Eastern combat myths. And these myths, the sea is represented as a chaotic force that wages war against God and his creation. So by invoking the image of beasts coming up out of the great sea, the vision is indicating these king, uh, the kingdom and these beasts they represent are forces set against God. Second, The overall impression of these beasts is terrifying. It seems, as Dale Davis points out, he wants these beasts to scare us. He wants us to register terror as we see these gross and frightful creatures. He seems to be teaching us something about the overall pattern of human history. He's certainly not blabbering blithely about progress in history. Rather, he seems to imply that on the whole, nations and kingdoms are out for conflict and conquest and control, that empires are bent to dominate and devour no matter how well they started and no matter how many people they mangle or how much misery they inflict. It's as if the writer invites us to incorporate the doctrine of total depravity into our politics. The kingdoms of this age seem to seize on the thing told to the second beast, arise, and devour much flesh. That seems to be the mantra of the kingdoms of this world. Daniel's vision is telling us that history is beastly. It's scary. He wants us to hold a clear realism about life in this world. And then third, the fourth beast is described specifically as different. And it seems we're supposed to see some significance in that difference. Again, Dale Davis is helpful here. He says the fourth image or the fourth beast is like nothing we can imagine. There's no like comparing it to anything in verse seven. The difference is that it's different. And so from verse seven, one could say this beast is different in the terror it inspires. It's terrifying and dreadful. The text says it's different in the havoc it reads. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It's different in the power it possesses. It had ten horns. And one is tempted, from verse 8, to add a fourth mode in which the beast is different. It's different in the type of rulers it produces. He called a little horn. He's obviously a mighty, dominant ruler who combines intelligence, eyes like the eyes of a man, with arrogance, speaking great things that we'll later learn are against God and his people. Always a poor combination for a leader. And it's actually for this reason that we should be careful about identifying the fourth beast in Daniel 7 with Rome. Uh, The writer seems to bend over backwards in order to say the fourth beast cannot be categorized. To be sure, all the beasts are different from each other. But the fourth beast is in a class all by itself, different from the preceding three, different in its viciousness and voraciousness, different apparently in the scope of its uh, domination, just as the little horn that comes from it is different from the rulers that precede it. And so it seems best to say that this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom, represents a different kingdom. And understand it as the last human kingdom, the one in which human and rebellion will finally reach its apex. And finally, if all of that frightens us, there is an incredible encouragement here. Because all of this happens under the sovereign control of God. And verse 2, notice again, Daniel saw that it's the four winds of heaven that stirs up the great sea. It's as if to say that what's stirring this up is coming from the very presence of God, where God dwells. Everything we're about to see is revealed under God's control. Further, the first three beasts were all acted upon by an unseen agent. The lion was transformed into a human-like figure. The bear was granted permission to satisfy its appetite. The leopard was given dominion. None of these beasts are doing anything, but rather things are being done to them. And the fourth beast, although it's different in that nothing is done to it, but it's the one doing the doing, will also reveal itself to be under the sovereign control of God in our next section, as we see that its kingdom is brought to an end, and its body is destroyed by God as swiftly as its kingdom started. And all of this is meant to communicate very simply, Yet powerfully, the kingdoms of this world are beastly. And yet, even they are under God's control. And it's this reality we need to fight to remember when we observe the beastliness, the violence, and the evil of the kingdoms of this world. Of course, remembering God is in control of all these beastly kingdoms will not keep us from pain, but it should keep us from panic. It won't keep us totally from fear but it should keep us from becoming frantic. These beasts truly are terrifying. They really do cause pain. And yet, we don't need to panic. We don't need to become frantic because our God is completely in control. And in this way, the Christian faith enables us to be both more realistic about the brokenness of the world we live in and more hopeful. We can see and recognize the depth of human sin, even in something as good as democracy. We can recognize not only the kingdoms of this world are beastly, but we ourselves are beastly. And yet we can also remain hopeful. Because even the worst, most wicked, most evil things that happen in this world are under God's control. What some intend for evil, God intends for our good and for his glory. I've said this before, but we see this most clearly demonstrated in the cross. The most evil, wicked, unjust thing to ever happen in the history of the universe. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, crucified, though he was innocent, perfect, and righteous. And yet God takes what appears to be a disaster and turns it into life for us. The first reality is that the kingdoms of this world are beastly and yet are under God's control. Therefore, we don't have to panic. We don't have to become frantic, but instead we can continue to hope in our good God. We see the second reality in verses 9 through 14. Here we see the kingdom of God will be established over all other kingdoms among all people forever. The kingdom of God will be established over all other kingdoms among all people forever. Abruptly, Daniel's visions shift from the beastly kingdoms of this world to God's throne room and to judgment on those visions. We get to see what's going on, even as the fourth beast rages against God with great words. And Daniel sees in verses 9 and 10, the Ancient of Days take his seat in the courtroom. And then he begins to describe him. And as one commentator points out, only Daniel calls God, The Ancient of Days. This is God the Father on his eternal and universal throne. And as the Ancient of Days, he is eternal, not old. He is wise, not senile. He is a big God, bigger than even Daniel realized, and bigger than the petty beast kingdoms of this world. And the following descriptions make that crystal clear. The Ancient of Days has clothing that's white like snow. Speaking of his holiness, his purity, his righteousness. The hair of his head is like white as wool. Speaking of his eternality, his purity and his wisdom. He has always existed and he knows better than anyone else. His throne was a flaming fire. Speaking of purifying and righteous judgment. Its wheels, the wheels of the throne, were blazing fire, telling us that God goes everywhere. His throne knows no bounds. It can go to any and every place, bringing his judgment everywhere. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence, reinforcing the previous two ideas and conveying the sense of righteous fury, the wrath of his judgment. Thousands upon thousands serve serve him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stand before him. Communicating the majesty of the ancient of days as so many people throng upon throng, crowd upon crowd, multitude upon multitude of people gathering in worship and service of him. And after this glorious description of God the Father, he then shifts back to the little horn that had been speaking great words. In verses 11 and 12, and we see even more quickly than this little horn had risen into power, the beast was killed. Its body destroyed. It was given over to be burned with fire. Judgment had come for it. And even the other kingdoms lost their dominion. And then the scene shifts yet again in verses 13 and 14 to one like a son of man who comes before the Ancient of Days with the clouds of heaven and receives dominion and glory and a kingdom that shall never pass away nor be destroyed. Further, this king and this kingdom is established among all people, all nations, and all languages. Once again here, we are reminded that our God is a missionary God from the very beginning, seeking to gather a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is why we as a church long to make disciples, not just here, but among the nations. We want to see God exalted and worshiped by all people everywhere. As John Piper has said, missions exist because worship doesn't. But I don't want us to miss the power of the imagery that's invoked here. One scholar points out that cloud imagery associated with the Lord's appearance is as old as Exodus and the pillar of the cloud leading God's people through the wilderness. And during the climactic appearance of God on Sinai, the mountain was covered by a cloud. And in the tabernacle, God appeared in the cloud and was present in the most holy place. In fact, two out of three references to clouds in Scripture are associated with a presence of God. And then we also learn of one who rides on the clouds in Psalm 68, verse 4. The psalmist says, sing to God, sing praise to him, extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord, and rejoice before him. And this makes all of this so profound in its Old Testament context. The one, like the Son of Man, appears before the Ancient of Days, what seems to be riding on the clouds, with the clouds of heaven, which is the prerogative of God alone. And so again, as Wendy Witter points out in her commentary, we cannot miss what's happening in Daniel's vision. There is a fiery scene surrounding God, seated on the throne, and there is someone riding the clouds. In the Old Testament, God is the one who rides in the cloud. But in this single vision, there are two divine figures, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, and the one, like the Son of Man, riding on the clouds, receiving from the Ancient of Days a kingdom that would last forever, an eternal right to rule. Daniel is seeing here two powers in heaven, the one on the throne and a vice regent sharing God's essence and receiving God's everlasting dominion and power. Here, we are getting, in the Old Testament itself, a window into the Trinity. Our conviction that there is one God, and yet he exists, and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see here first, the Heavenly Father, the Ancient of Days, sitting on his heavenly throne. And then we see one like a Son of Man, receiving the kingdom from God the Father, co-equal to the Father. But who is this Son of Man? Well, none other than Jesus. This is actually Jesus' favorite title to apply to himself. And I hope you're beginning to see why. So Jesus would say the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He claims the Son of Man was Lord of the Sabbath. He says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. All things that are the prerogative of God alone. Jesus would then use this title to teach his disciples. He would suffer that he would be betrayed, that he would die and be buried for three days, that he would rise again, combining this title, the Son of Man, with the image of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Jesus, in describing himself in all these ways, is claiming to be the king who would receive and rule over an everlasting kingdom, worshipped and served by all people. Jesus is claiming to be God himself, come in human flesh. And that's why the Pharisees would respond by calling him a blasphemer, And finally, Jesus is helping his disciples to understand that the way this kingdom described in Daniel 7 would come is by way of the cross. It's by suffering first. And so when Jesus, the Son of Man, came to earth and lived the perfect life of obedience that we should have lived and received the judgment we deserved when he was crucified on the cross and then three days later rose from the dead in glory, it was on that day, He defeated our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death itself. It was on that day He established His kingdom on the earth. And yet, as we mentioned earlier, it's important for us to recognize that from what the perspective of an apocalyptic vision appears like one event can in reality describe multiple events. And such is the case with this vision. Although Jesus' kingdom has already been established since his death and resurrection, it has not yet come in all its fullness. Not all people everywhere worship and serve him. Although death has already been defeated, it has not been finally destroyed. Although the verdict has been declared against the fourth beast, the fourth beast is still coming, attacking God's people. The fullness of this vision would have to wait until the second coming of Jesus. And Jesus himself would appeal to Daniel chapter 7 in order to teach us this. and Matthew 24, Jesus teaches his disciples to expect persecution, to expect the destruction of the temple, to expect wars and famines. And he describes all these things as but the beginning of the birth pains. And then Jesus goes on to say that after all these trials, there will then appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, appealing directly back to Daniel chapter 7. And he says, This Son of Man will come with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. It's then with his second coming, not with his first, that the Son of Man will gather the nations for the last courtroom trial that ends in the final separation of believers from unbelievers, some for eternal life, others from eternal punishment. And so, by turning our attention then from the beastly kingdoms in verses 1 through 8 and turning our attention so abruptly to this courtroom scene and the coming of the Son of Man, it seems this passage is telling us don't be overly anxious about that little horn. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus, the Son of Man, who has already come to establish his kingdom and who will one day come again to finally and fully establish the kingdom of God over all other kingdoms among all people. And this kingdom, unlike the beastly kingdoms of this world that rise and fall, will outlast and outshine all of them. It will be established forever and ever and ever. This is our great hope as Christians. As our statement of faith puts it, we believe in the personal bodily and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates us to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. And when Jesus does return, we believe that as this passage describes, God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation an eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the lord in the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace even as the kingdoms of this world rage on god is on his throne fully and completely in control his justice is certain and though ungodly kingdoms beastly kingdoms will rise and fall and will even strut on the world's platform this much is certain Fire will fall from heaven. Righteousness will prevail. The Ancient of Days will kill the beasts, even as their powers are said to exist for a season. But salvation will come for God's people. Which means we have hope, no matter what troubles us in this world. And because we have hope, we can persevere until Jesus comes back. But if you're not a Christian, you need to understand That if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not trusted in Jesus, then you're on the side of the four beasts. And with the four beasts, you will experience condemnation, judgment, wrath, and destruction when Jesus returns. And yet, if you would come to Jesus, the Son of Man, who has received dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom, the Son of Man who died in your place and rose from the dead so that you could be a part of his kingdom, Instead of judgment, you'll receive mercy. Instead of condemnation, you'll receive praise. Instead of wrath, you'll receive grace. Instead of destruction, you will experience abundant life. So I would plead with you, come to Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. You'll be delivered. You'll receive the kingdom along with him. And if you need to Talk more about what that means or what that looks like. Please come talk with me after the service or any of our members. We would be delighted to tell you more about how you can receive this kind of hope in Jesus. And if you sense the urgency of this choice, but you're not ready to make the choice, please still come talk to us. We would love to talk with you about your questions, your doubts, and your fears. A second reality is that the kingdom of God will be established over all other kingdoms. Among all people forever. Finally, we see the third reality in verses 15 through 28. The kingdom of God will be received by his saints after they suffer for a time. The kingdom of God will be received by his saints after they suffer for a time. In verse 15, despite the unveiling of the final judgment on the four beasts and the glorious coming of the Son of Man who would reign over all the earth forever, we learn that Daniel is still anxious. He's still alarmed by these visions. Why? Well, it appears, though we don't know for sure, it appears that Daniel was hoping and expecting that after the exile in Babylon ended, all the pain, all the suffering, all the heartache would be behind him. He expected, finally, the people of Judah would now be under not the covenant curses, but under the covenant blessings of God again, experiencing his material provision. But now he finds out through this vision that the exile they have experienced is only the beginning. Currently, they're experiencing exile as a result of God's judgment for their disobedience. But now he's beginning to learn that they'll continue to experience exile, not as a sign of disobedience and judgment, but actually as a sign of faithfulness, living faithfully to God under the beastly kingdoms of this world. They would experience exile as a part of the normal course of living in a fallen world under beastly kingdoms. And of course, that would be disorienting for Daniel as it's disorienting for all of us anytime our expectations are misguided and our hope is misplaced. This, as I've said before, is one of the most egregious Uh, wrongs and offenses of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. In it, we're taught that if we have enough faith in God, he'll give us health, wealth, and material prosperity. But if we don't get the promotion, if we don't get our cancer healed, if our life isn't otherwise miraculously blessed, then we're left to conclude either that our faith wasn't enough or God wasn't faithful. And rarely are people who buy into this prosperity gospel as blessed as Daniel was to realize that perhaps the problem was neither their faith nor the faithfulness of God. Perhaps the problem was our expectations. And this is precisely what the rest of this section will help us to see. What should we expect until the Son of Man comes with the clouds and glory? So in light of his anxiety, Daniel asked in verse 16, he asks one of the heavenly figures in his vision the truth concerning the vision. And as we've already heard, this heavenly visitor, probably an angel, explains the interpretation in verse 17 and 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So even if we're fuzzy about some of the details, like which beast refers to which kingdom and what the precise timing of the Son of Man's second coming will be, we know at least this much. The four beasts are four kings, and the saints of the Most High will both receive the kingdom and possess it forever. That's the gist of this vision. This may be apocalyptic literature, but that's reasonably clear. You can't read verses 17 and 18 and say, I don't know what this vision's about. We know what it's about. But all of this leaves Daniel still a bit unsatisfied. As many of us do, he longs for more details. And so he asks for more information about the little horn and the fourth beast in verses 19 and 20. And as he describes what he saw in his vision, once more it's here we learn for the first time in verses 21 through 22 what was going on between his first vision and the appearance of the little horn in verse 8 and the coming of the, second, of the Ancient of Days in verse 9 in his second vision. And he says... As I look, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This little horn was making war with the people of God and appeared to even be prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days comes and pours out his judgment. And at this final description, Daniel's interpreter expands on the fourth beast's kingdom. He says it will exercise a worldwide domination. It will devour all the earth and trample it down and smash it to pieces. Its savagery will be universal. And yet, this regime will suffer internal fragmentation. Ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he'll put down three kings. Seems evil can never manufacture enough glue to keep itself together. It has no lasting cohesion. The dissension always seems to surface The evil regime may crush with power, but the power always seems to have cracks in it. Then, at least in its little horn phase, this kingdom will inflict hate-driven persecution on the people of God. He'll wear down the saints of the Most High. That's in verse 25. Something verse 21 already prepared us to hear. And this persecution is strangely and comfortingly ultimately resting in God's decision. For the saints are given into the little horn's hand, meaning given by God. This is happening according to God's design. <clears throat> and yet verse 25 would indicate the saints are given into the little horn's hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now this phrase is hotly debated, and some will argue time, times, and half a time actually means Year, two years, and half a year. That is, three and a half years. And those who read it in this way then say one of two things. This either uh, corresponds closely to a historical event during the period, uh, what's called the intertestamental period, the closing of the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament, where the Jewish people experienced three and a half years of intense suffering. Others who read it this way prefer to speak of three and a half years of tribulation of God's people at the time of the second coming of Christ. However, as Trimper Longman points out, questions need to be raised about attempts to make this symbolic number so specific. After all, the second phrase is times, not two times. It's not impossible that this noun could mean years. In other words, half, uh, a year, years, and half a year. But even so, if it referred to years, not times, that would refer to an indefinite period of time. Years, years, not two years, years. So it seems better to understand this reference to be as vague as it sounds on your first reading. The force of the language, time, times, and half a time, seems to be saying something like this. The suffering of God's people will get off to a fast start, a time. And then it'll seem like it's going to last forever, times indefinite. But then it's suddenly cut off, half a time. As quickly as this war begins against the people of God, it will be cut off even more suddenly. And then the court of the Ancient of Days will sit in judgment, and the final beast will be destroyed. And then the saints of the Most High will receive his kingdom forever. And on that day, all people everywhere will serve and obey God forever. And of course, we can relate to us. As we look at the suffering in this world, sometimes it feels like this is going to go on forever. And yet Daniel reassures us, it will come to an end. And on that day, if you are in Christ, you will reign and rule with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, as you always should have. And that will be forever and ever and ever. And yet before that day, Daniel's vision is pretty clear. The enemies of God, the beasts, and the little horn in particular, will make war against his people They'll seek to wear us out. They will seek to make it so that we do not persevere to the end. And all this reminds me of Paul's words in Second Corinthians 4. He tells us, we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. But how does Paul view all these sufferings? He goes on to say, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The time, times, and half a time that will endure suffering is but a blip in all eternity. And so, dear brothers and sisters, please hear me. We must be prepared to suffer. And not just prepared to suffer through the course of living in a broken and fallen world, but we must be prepared to suffer because we belong to Jesus. And I say this not because... Things have gotten so bad in America that we should expect outright persecution to break out at any moment. In fact, most recently, there's been a lot of good cases that have gone before the Supreme Court where religious liberty has won out. I don't think outright persecution is in the cards in the near future. Nor do I say this because the season we're living in is any more tumultuous than any of the major seasons that Christians have faced before us. Do you think the people who endured the Black Plague in the 14th century are the people who watched the fall of Rome in the fifth century, or the Christians who endured persecution and watched the temple destroyed, were any less anxious about their circumstances than we are? I doubt it. So, why do I say then we need to be prepared to suffer because we belong to Jesus? Well, the reason's as simple as it is hard to hear. God's people are a suffering people. It's always been that way. God's people are are suffering people. And this is why Daniel's final response to this vision is this. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Just as this was hard for Daniel to hear, it's hard for us to hear that suffering is normal. But the reality is there have always been beastly kings and beastly kingdoms since the time of Babylon. And there will be beastly kings and beastly kingdoms until Jesus comes back. And just like for Jesus, it was suffering first and then glory. So too for us, it will be suffering first, then glory. And the only thing that will enable us to endure this alarming news and to persevere for a time, times, and half a time is to keep our eyes fixed on the eternal weight of glory that's been prepared for us. And faith, we need to look beyond our suffering to the day when, as our text says, the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heavens shall be given to who? To the peoples, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The message of Daniel 7 is clear. God's faithful We, his saints, may suffer oppression, but he will not abandon us. And we will one day share in his eternal kingdom. And so, dear brothers and sisters, like Daniel, we don't need to look forward to suffering. But neither should we be surprised by it. Neither should we be discouraged by it. And nor should we whine about it. Instead, we must be prepared for it. As James says, we ought to count it all joys, my brothers and sisters when we face trials of various kinds. We must remember, Jesus has already come once and suffered for us. We must believe that Jesus' promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us is really true, and not even suffering changes that. Not even suffering means he's abandoned us. Instead, he is in control. And is working out all things for our good and his glory. And when we hope in this glorious reality, We look forward to Jesus' return. And his kingdom will be extended over all the earth and everything in it. And on that day, by his grace, we will receive the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. That is our great reward. But it will only come after we suffer for a time. So Northwood, not only can we live with hope, but we should live with hope through our suffering. Because the kingdoms of this world are beastly and yet are totally under God's control. He is not surprised by it, but he's working things out through them. Because the kingdom of God will be established over all other kingdoms among all people forever. His judgment is certain. His reign will rule. And Because the kingdom of God will be received by us, his saints, after we suffer for a time. That is our great reward. When Jesus comes back, we will reign and rule with him forever. That will be what we get to do for all eternity until suffering's just in the rear view mirror, a little blip in the scope of all eternity. So as we conclude our time together, let's consider what God has been saying to us through his word. And perhaps these questions will help you. How does knowing that the beastly kingdoms of this world are under God's control, keep you from panicking when you consider the possibility of suffering for your faith? Ask God to help you trust him with your suffering. Second, how does the reality of future judgment when Jesus returns move you to come to him now to receive his mercy instead of judgment? Please take seriously the call to commit to him consider what he's inviting you to do. And if you want to talk more about what that means, talk with me or our members after the service. Finally, how does knowing Jesus will not abandon us in our suffering, but instead we will one day receive his kingdom with him, prepare you to persevere through suffering. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you trust Jesus is with you, even in the hardest seasons of life. Let's take a moment to quietly reflect on what God has been saying to us. Through his word. Ancient of days, one like the Son of Man, we confess there are so many things that trouble our hearts in this world. It is so obvious that the kingdoms of this world are beastly, and there is evil and wickedness. We are tempted in the midst of these realities to despair to lose hope and so we ask that you would help us to set our eyes on your return to set our eyes on your certain judgment to set our eyes on righteousness and glory and power and to trust that our Savior Jesus is with us and for us even in the face of suffering. And Lord, we ask in the midst of that, as you give us faith and hope, you would help us to persevere to the end, faithful until you return or call us home. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.